Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of English and Comparative Literature, the Center for the Study of Social Difference, the Institute for Research on Women, Gender, and Sexuality, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates William Peterfield Trent, Professor of English at Columbia, Marianne Hirsch, and Kathy Tapp Vernon, Professor of History Emeritus at Dartmouth, Leo Spitzer's book, School Photos in Liquid Time, Reframing Difference. First, we'll hear Marianne and Leo speaking about their book at the panel, and then we'll hear the comments Gil Hochberg, Ransford Professor of Hebrew and Visual Studies, Comparative Literature, and Middle East Studies at Columbia made at the panel. Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Mm-hmm. So first, I, I, we want to thank the Heyman Center for hosting this uh, event. It's really such a joy to be here, um, always in interesting uh, conversations. There are always wonderful conversations here. Um, and to Sarah Hope for the idea of uh, featuring new work by faculty. I think it's uh, Sarah Hope, our Dean of Humanities, uh, and everyone who's worked on this event. And I really want to to say how moved and excited we are to be with this particular panel. Uh, I'm so sorry Remy couldn't join us because I know that each of your perspectives is going to add immeasurably to the book um, and I've already learned so much from listening to Jack. So we just want to ask a very basic question, why a book on school photos? How does something like this become a topic? Images that are so ordinary, uh, so ubiquitous, so um, conventional uh, that they pretty much seem opaque because so many of us have them but I don't think many of us have thought about them as a genre of photography or as a historical object very much so how do they constitute a topic of academic inquiry and uh, we also want to talk about what some of the book's main features are just uh, very briefly uh, we'll tell you our own each of our own origin stories with this topic and they're somewhat different So, <clears throat> hi. Let me let me just begin with with uh, sorry with, with my origin story, which uh, I think some of you do know. Uh, that is, I'm a historian who has sort of worked all over the place. I've worked in, in uh, Latin America, I've worked in Africa, uh, in Eastern and and Central Europe, uh, all all over the place. And I've worked. My my work has been on on questions of of uh, colonialism, of marginality of assimilationism and exclusion, and on questions of personal and cultural memory. And uh, I think when I, in all of this work, I, I've been collecting photographs that might prove relevant for my research. For, I've done this collection for over a very long, long time. Uh, I quickly noticed two things in doing this, these collections. First of all, something that Marianne already mentioned, is the the ubiquity of school photos. The fact that they can be found almost everywhere, both in private uh, collections as well as in institutional and in public archives. And secondly, uh, I noticed, and we both noticed, the early appearance and long existence of school photos within the history of photography. That is, the earliest uh, surviving one that we were able to, to uh, 
fine and uh, is in 1843 uh, of uh, the what was then called the College of New Jersey, uh, came Princeton University. You can find this very daguerreotype in the Princeton archives to this very day. Uh, so they appear very, very early on uh, in the history. And uh, in talking over both the ubiquity of, photo, of school photos and the, uh, or their early appearance, uh, the fact that they, that, they come, that they come up very early in the history of photography, uh, we began to ask, oh, why, why is this so? Uh, why, what is it, in fact, that school photographs do? We have them, but we tend to not have them, but we don't think that much about them. Maybe as memorial objects, many of us hate them, uh, our own school <laughs> photos, others don't. Uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're, we don't really think about what school photos do. Now, we soon came to understand more generally that technical innovations in photography, as photography moved out of the daguerreotype stage into the stage where photographs were able to be replicable, and that became a major revolution that you could, uh, you could uh, uh, duplicate or triplicate or replicate photos and also sell them, and in a sense it opened up a whole commercial uh, uh, a possibility for school photos because the daguerreotypes are one of a type and they have to be looked at under very, very uh, uh, severe conditions. They could be replicated. So the technical innovations in photography in the second half of the 19th century coincided with the development of state education in Europe, in the Americas, and the Euro-American colonies. And we realized that in their efforts to manage religious, ethnic, national, and racialized differences in, among their, their heterogeneous populations, state-connected authorities, uh, national, colonial, imperial, used school photography to further their assimilationist and socially transformative ideologies. Uh, I, Wanted to show you just in back the uh, where are we now uh, the photograph of the uh, of the two lives. Okay, just show that. Okay, that. Okay. So in what what we do in the book is that we explore the similar uh, strategies all over the world in these imperial and national and 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 and, and uh, other centers promoting social integration, but also promoting separation uh, that emerge in these vastly uh, uh, divergent social historical contexts. So the conventions of school photography bring these common tactics into view. We study uh, at length in our book images of Jewish children in uh, uh, schools created in Nazi ghettos during the Holocaust of Japanese-American children incarcerated during World War II in American and U.S. concentration camps, uh, and various others uh, to expose the fragility of the assimilationist project, revealing really the other side of assimilationism, which is separation, exclusion, murder, and at such moments of extremity, 
school photos become vehicles of communal resistance and of memorialization. So I have a somewhat different um, origin story um, with this project. Um, you can see our own pictures here. Um, and I put that up here to show that, um, you know, I've done a lot of work on uh, vernacular everyday images. I wrote a book on family photos and the book that Leo and I wrote together about Chernovitz. Uh, we use street photos. These are all kind of unremarkable um, objects. Um, and I was, I've always been very interested in the stories they tell and the stories they don't tell, and the silences they produce and the secrecy that revolves around them. And uh, always the challenge of how very conventional images can nevertheless be used against the conventions that shape them, against the ideologies that they serve. So that tension has, you know, was very formative for me. But there's also a personal connection. As you can see, we've spent some time looking at our own school photos. And the origin of the project is really a conference that we were invited to um, in 2008, um, which was on feeling photography. Uh, it was a response to the much older book from the 80s of Victor Bergen's book called Thinking Photography. So it was about photography and affect. And when we tried to think about, well, how do you, what is, what is, what is the emotional life of a school photo? What does it feel to be turned from the subject of the family, of the institution of the family, to become the subject of a school? Um, what, are, what are the affects? What, are, what, what does that feel like? We had to kind of look at um, some of our own photos. But mostly um, what inspired us to write this book is the discovery of a number of artists mm -hmm. who have used school photos in their work, um, who have engaged them, who have reframed them, who have thereby revealed the power of institutions to frame children and also disrupted and dislodged that power through um, what uh, in the book uh, following the critic, the art, art historian Gabriel Moser, we call the disobedient gaze, right? So how they ask us, they invite us to look at these images even while questioning the stories they tell and the means through which they tell them. So this dialogue between everyday archival school photos that are you know, quite similar and conventional, and the work of a number of artists from across <coughs> the globe who have provided these insights is a really distinctive feature of our book. And uh, the book really, it constructs that dialogue, and this is why having the opportunity to do an exhibition was so amazing for us, because there, of course, you could uh, create that dialogue spatially and visually uh, in space, and you can uh, walk, walk um, through these images and look at them together. So just to show you a few of these uh, works, uh, and to uh, and we use them really to theorize the, the school photo through the work of these artists. This is a, a work by Vic Moniz. It's from his, um, from his um, uh, uh, series called Album. It's a, all different kinds of images that you would have in your album. And uh, it's made up, I don't know if you can see it here, it's made up of cut up school photos, of cut-up photos. So it's really about the materiality of the image. It comments on the image. But it also, we think, shows us how schools and social institutions and political institutions um, take us apart and put us together again um, as their subjects, right? Uh, how they unmake us and remake us, how unlearning uh, is, is as much part of growing up in school as, as, as learning, and in, in the sense also that uh, Jack talked about this, the, the queerness of the child. Um, 
So, uh, of course, uh, one of the you know most famous artists working with a school picture is Christian Boltanski, and we're going to show you the source image and what some of these artists have done with it. Um, Lori Novak, who's worked with these images of hidden children um, in from Isieux, France, who were eventually um, um, deported and, and murdered in Auschwitz. Um, the work of David Wojnarowicz, um, here really is the story of the queer child who does not fit in the school, and therefore it's not a group image, it's an individual image, and his isolation is really, uh, and his, his past and future, and no future are really written into the skin of the image. Um, and then um, a number of um, artists like Carrie Mae Weems, uh, who works with the images from Native American boarding schools that we've um, that we examined at length in the book, especially the before and after uh, images that have, that were so common to show the successes of assimilation and integration and the erasure of indigenous cultures. Um, Weems installs these um, in in uh, in her Hampton project uh, and writes this scathing text, rewriting the idea of before and after. So for her, before is before the conquest, and after is, you know, after Jim Crow, and, and so on. Um, and they're African-American and Native American children. So um, I think what these artists do is not just teach us how to look at these um, images, but they also, they enlarge, they multiply, they deepen the time frame of the image. And this brings me just quickly to the idea of liquid time, which is in the title and, and Jack already mentioned. Um, so photographs generally are more, do more than document the time of their production. They create a sense of a future in which they will have new roles to play uh, every time they're looked at them as objects of memory, as documents of history. Um, and in order to appreciate this sense of future um, and liquidity of time uh, of the image, I think these artists show us how these, um, how the, the idea that a photograph is about one uh, second in time uh, is, you know, has long been surpassed. Of course, now if you have the live feature on your iPhone, you already see that the mom that moment is many different moments and you can choose a different moment um, for your uh, main image. Um, so in fact, it is this that inspired the idea of the liquidity of time because we were inspired by a very short essay um, by the artist Jeff Wall called Photography and Liquid Intelligence and he talks about the shift from analog to the digital uh, and talks about, redefines re the idea that uh, the apparatus is static and fixed and talks about the moment when we, in the developing bath, when the image emerges from the developing bath, anything can happen. There's a contingency, there's change, um, things can shift, and uh, for us, this became very generative of the idea that photographs keep developing, as it were, uh, and that they can be looked at every time they, they are looked at differently. Uh, they change the original, but also uh, they make um, new things happen. So uh, that, that's for a little bit of time. But um, they're never really fixed. They're open to ever new insights and interpretations. So just quickly, one of the things that became really important in looking at these institutional images that are framed and shaped by an institutional gaze 
is to figure out ways to unframe them, to take them out of that fixing, and to align ourselves with the subjects of the image and not only with the photographer and the institutional um, and, and the institution. And so in response to the images from the boarding schools, we have this wonderful group of images by Beverly Brown, who was a student in one of these schools and who had a brownie camera and was able to take her own images. And we read the different body postures, the different uh, connections here. And that brings me to another um, distinctive feature of the book, and it ends with the idea of school photography as a form of resistance and demand for justice, for social justice. Uh, we spent some time with this image by Marcelo Brodsky from Argentina, and we end with this idea that students now, the, the new student movements, can reconceive school photography and use it for a different purpose. And these are, uh, you know, images that were framed, serve the institution and serve the state, well, we can make them serve us um, for a different kind of future. And so this is um, the image that is not in the book, but that I found as um, a way to illustrate that point. So thank you. Now we'll hear the comments Columbia Professor Gil Hochberg made at the panel. When I, uh, in, in the past, when my grandmother and my father were still alive and Poland joined the EU, I was very excited, so I asked them for to, because they were both born in Poland, and I asked for them to renew the Polish citizenship so that I will have an EU <laughs> citizenship. And my grandmother was out, she wasn't cynical at all, she just looked at me and she said, there are Jews and there are Poles. Jewish Polish? Mm -hmm. Polish Jew, that's an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. So um, that's in terms of uh, the assimilation. And it might just be my, uh, my family's uh, mm -hmm. story, but I didn't get that EU. Uh, oh, it's <laughs> worth having. Mm -hmm. They refused. OK, so um, I enjoyed uh, the book profoundly. I do want to emphasize what was already emphasized, which was that um, while uh, Marianne and Leo do look at um, uh, photographs taken at, at times of crisis, they are asking of us, and this is from their book, what happens if we try to view photographs of school children in these circumstances, not as images of children about to die or doomed to lead a traumatized life, but simply as class photos. So this is sort of a question I want to um, um, kind of uh, stay with. And I had two directions. I chose one of them, but I do want to bring out the other one that I will not bring out because I do think it's important for the conversation, which is that um, while there is the question of um, the potentiality of these photos in sort of presenting this flexual time, we also have to remember, of course, that uh, we don't only look at photographs of children who are about to die. We also have an enormous amount of Hitler youth uh, school photos, enormous archive. Um, and so my question would be, what does it mean to look at children who we know are about to kill? Um, and most of them will not pay uh, any price for, for those uh, killings. So does the, 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 the hunting that is are, are in the photos of perpetrators, that was the direction I thought of taking, but then I didn't. And then I chose a, a different one, which we will follow now. <laughs> Uh, so what are school photos? 
Um, I think that we can all agree that these images, their production, setting, rituals around their, their distribution, circulation, presentation, all function as ubiquitous markers of schooling. Schooling in the immediate sense of rendering children as students in a particular role, particular institutions, particular group, teachers, etc., but also in the wider sense that Marcel Mousse has talked about in terms of the techniques of the body, the way in which the body moves at the level of the individual, which is restricted and guided by pre-given collectives. School photos indeed have limited and predictable pre-given frameworks, and that is interesting because they are similar, right? I mean, if you look at Nazi youth school photos, they look very much like photos taken in together. So that there's something about the aesthetics uh, uh, maintains itself. So there's the line arrangement, which we're all familiar with, where kids are positioned in a group, standing or sitting, tall in the back, short in the front, teachers on the side, forced smile on all. <laughs> and there are the other formats, the ones that are uh, less common, but still are common, which include the photos in class, whereby we have a situation of kids who are sitting, they're either asked to raise their hands or to sit up straight, they have a studious expression, or again, the forced smile. Um, the photo arrangements mold and shape these individuals into clusters, students, well-behaved, orderly beings, part of a nation and ethnic collective, as, as um, is clearly argued in the book. Um, and um, the other aspect which I want to focus on today is that it also demands of the kids to come into their gender. I admit to personally never have thought too much about school photos, despite not particularly liking being part of them as a child. But all this has changed for me about three years ago, when my now 14 years old, who gave permission um, to talk about without um, disclosing their name, um, <laughs> uh, was in sixth grade and came back home triumphant after a devastating but eventually victorious school photo day. <laughs> so I'm going to uh, tell you the story. Um, and, and I ran by it. It's, it's really, it's, I, I, I can assure you this is an authentic, uh, as far as I know. Okay, so this event took place at the end of 2015. This was at the nice neighborhood in West LA where my kid went to school. And this was the last uh, uh, year. Um, so uh, they're about to graduate. And so this photo, which was the school photo, was also it's a particularly important because it's a graduation photo. So uh, getting ready, the young photographer approached the kids and said, now I need all the girls to put the right arm on their right hip and tilt slightly to the left. All the boys, keep your arms straight down. Everybody look straight at me and smile. This is the report I got uh, from the kid this afternoon, my kid this afternoon, that afternoon. Next thing, my kid, who we will call E, uttered quietly but determinately, no. <laughs> the kids turned and looked at them astonishingly. The photographer approached and asked, no, what no? E later told me that at that point they already felt quite nervous, but they also knew it was already too late because they already said no. So they went on and responded, I don't want to put my arm on my hip. The photographer didn't like that. She responded first by saying, well, you must. It's the graduation photograph and it's part of the composition. 
But then, after he replied with yet another dry and quiet, no, the photographer came with another solution. Okay, if you can't do that, that's fine. You can stand like a boy. <laughs> no. Considering that offer for a few seconds, he quietly replied, I can't. Three years later, that is now, he will already have a whole language for rejecting the gender binary altogether, but back then, really, uh, the no was restricted to the question of standing. And according to the report I got at that time, they really did not understand or couldn't fathom the idea that there are different standing positions for boys and girls. Angered or likely provoked, the photographer ended up sending E to uh, talk to the principal while keeping the entire class waiting. When E returned, accompanied by the principal, the photographer was told to let E stand as they wish. And the final image, which until recently was featured on the refrigerator, <laughs> recently removed, um, by E, E is holding their hands over their chest, like this, grinning. <laughs> this story ends up on the bright side, a victory of a determined kid over the heteronormative matrix. And I admit, I felt quite proud that day, and I still do. But I think it is safe to assume that this is not commonly the case. I think it's safe to ask, and important to ask, how many queer kids are forced to straighten up for school photographs? How many inquisitive kids are molded into rigid positions in an unforgiving heteronormative regime? Marianne and Leo in the book focus on the conformity of school photos from the early 20th century, the late 19th century, as markers of institutional power, nation, ethnic affinities. And they show us that while these photographs function as mechanism of exclusion, and also as mechanisms of concealing racial differences, they may nevertheless still be approached as informative documents. Visual documents that hold within them evidence of a failed or partial assimilation, or even evidence of the very dissonance and violence involved in the promise of civil integration. I find this very appealing, and I want to join this convincing argument by suggesting that we can conduct a similar reading of school photos so as to undermine the full force of what Adrian Rich has called compulsory heterosexuality. What if we focus, for example, not on the composition, which was the main focus of the great photographer at the kids' school, but on the awkwardness captured on the facial expression of many of the kids, being molded into boys and girls, among other things, of course. What if we look carefully for the dissonances or the failure to perform? Can we follow Leo and Marianne's reading methodology to look at the limits of conformity? Can we approach the photographs as an invitation to witness the children's own discomfort with this very process of discipline? Marianne and Leo persuasively suggest that school photographs approach uh, approached as a message delivered from and across time may become part of a, quote, archive of possibility. Speaking particularly about photos taken at a time of crisis, war, survival, colonialism, and its aftermath, 
They suggest that these images can function as, I quote, particularly effective memorial objects and that they may even affirm a horizon of freedom that persists amid catastrophe. If we follow Adrian Rich's analysis of compulsory heterosexuality, we must realize that for some of us, everyday living is a life at a time of crisis, and that school photographs take, uh, taken not only during wars, genocide, and other colonial occupation, but also here today, and as this story demonstrates, in New York or in West LA in the 21st and 22nd century, these are traumatic events, at least for some. But that as such, they are also visual evidence of what Mariana and Leo describe as the disobedient gaze, found at the very midst of a visual archive of destruction. So I want to thank you both for making it more bearable for me and for E to look at school photos, mine and others, uh, not only as evidence of the power of the institution and its violence, but also as a map to decipher for traces of resistance. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Marianne Hirsch and Leo Spitzer's book, School Photos in Liquid Time, Reframing Difference. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Stephanie McCurry's book, Women's War, Fighting and Surviving the American Civil War. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.